Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm so, so happy that you're here. And frankly, I'm happy that I'm here because you may have noticed that after creating four episodes, I went radio silence, podcast silence. Um, I created four podcast episodes and then I realized I was completely burned out. So I took a little break, took a page from my own advice book. And it just took a little bit of time to recalibrate, regroup, took some time off. And now here we are. So welcome back. As I said, I'm really happy to be here with you. If you are new to the show, my name is Lise Wilcox and I help women make more money. I have almost 10 years of experience as a life and business coach. And this remains my, oh, that remains my puppy. Uh, it remains my passion. I love working with women. I love helping women make more money. And I noticed over the years, even when money was not the focal point of, of my business or of helping others in their business, I noticed that when we worked on people's relationship with themselves and we, you know, looked at their confidence, their self-love, their self-acceptance, their permission to stop playing small and start using their voice, this funny thing happened. Every time we increased the inner work or the self-work, their net worth went up as well. And so I started to notice that when we close the gap between self-worth and net worth, both your self-worth goes up and your net worth goes up. So I thought that was really interesting and now we're really on to something. This is a really special time to be a part of this podcast and this community because I have just released my first online course and it is aptly named Loving Money. The great thing about it is it's a seven day course. Like I kept it really, really simple. And it's something you can literally do in seven days to actually transform your relationship to money. It isn't a money mindset course. This is actually a very difficult thing to market from an SEO perspective <laughs> behind the scenes glance. Yeah, it's not easy to market because it's not actually an, a money mindset course. It's even before that. It's this foundational step that like every entrepreneur I know skips, every money mindset course skips, every free piece of financial literature skips, and I'm bringing it to you in seven days. It is really, truly looking at your relationship to money, how you feel about money. Our money stuff is literally never about the money stuff. It is always about how we feel about the money. So as I said, Loving Money is now available on my website, leasefullcox.com. It's like a couple hundred bucks. I don't think it even is a couple hundred bucks. If you use the code Loving Money, we can give you a little bit of a discount just as a thank you. And it's going to change your relationship to money straight up in a week. So go forth. So today I thought what we would do is to kind of as a little regroup, I wanted to share with you the deeper kind of shadowy side behind my own relationship to money, because I will tell you, it was not always good. <laughs> it was not always healthy. In fact, it was often quite the opposite for quite a long time in my life. And I feel it's really important to bring that to the surface. You know, I'm a fan of sunshine being the best antiseptic. And I really want to share with you my own dark or vulnerable past, let's say, bring it to the surface, share or shine a little sunshine on it so we can name, de-shame, and normalize that too. So I'm going to tell you a little story that I grew up wealthy, but I always felt poor. Now, usually when I share this story, people say to me, you know, that's so unusual. It's so unusual for somebody who's talking about money to say they grew up with money. Usually it's somebody who's coming from a place of overcoming. Well, 
yes, I, there's absolutely no question that I grew up with privilege. And interestingly, the dynamic or the intangible environment in our home life was one of scarcity and not enough, specifically not good enough, but I'll get to that. It was made very, very clear to me from about the age of six after some family dynamic changes that despite our external trappings of wealth, there was never enough for me. And moreover, there would never be enough for me. From my preteen years, I worked at least two jobs. I don't know about you, but I've been working since I was 12. And I honestly had have had, except for my adult life when I do I don't know. I guess I run one business, but it has like a whole offer suite. So does that really count? We'll come back to that. But since I was 12, I have had at least two jobs. My first job was cleaning a bed and breakfast. I grew up in a small town that was very touristy and we had a thriving B&B business, not business, a, th- a thriving B&B industry. Like everybody who owned a Victorian house turned it into a bed and breakfast. And there was one across the street from me. And so my very first job at the tender age of 12 was to go over and make the beds clean the rooms. It taught me so much about how disgusting people are. I can't even tell you. <laughs> there was a lot of innocence destroyed in, in, in those months working at the B&B, I gotta say. Uh, and simultaneously, I also had a paper route. Like, remember when people read newspapers and it was children who delivered the actual physical paper? Well, that was me. And every day at three o'clock, I would head over to the corner, like the northeast corner of, uh, of our block and pick up the stack of newspapers, fold them all up, take them out of that, you know, the plastic strapping that like ties together. You had to have to kind of get your nail under it, untape it from one, untape it from itself and, and discard it. Had to get that little white, plastic tapey thing off of it, fold them all up and put them in my newspaper carrier bag. Now, interestingly, I often had my two younger stepsisters in tow with me. So I have these vivid memories of like walking along the neighborhood streets with a wagon with two little girls in the back while delivering my newspapers. Other times I would do it on my bike or a friend would come with me and we would be riding our bikes and we happened, (laughs) we happened to go past Matt Ribello's house on the route. Now, Matt Ribello was such a cool kid in our school. He was the nicest kid. Everybody everybody called him Foo. I guess when he was very little, his older brother couldn't say Matthew. So we just called him Mafu. And then everybody we knew called him Foo. So we would go by Foo's house and Foo was a total skater like back in the 90s when we were just like living that skater boy dream. And he and all his skater friends, a guy I had a crush on, Mike McCutcheon would always be there. And I just have this, again, this other vivid memory of kind of parking my bike there, walking up and down the streets to do the rest of my, <laughs> the rest of my favorite route. And when I came back, the guys were doing an ollie over my bike. Now, I don't know if you're into skateboarding or if you even care about this, but like an ollie is a trick where you like, it's a jump. You, you basically get a huge momentum going towards the object you're going to jump over and somehow they like transcend gravity and they do something to the board that jumps over something. Now, usually kids are ollieing like, I don't know, a stick or a a sidewalk curb, but somebody ollied my bike and I have been five, nine since I was in grade eight. So that's, that was a big bike frame. Anyway, 
lots of happy memories on that paper route not so many happy memories at the at the bed and breakfast i actually keep going to say airbnb because our, our vocabulary has just changed so much about accommodation but it was a classic bnb anyway as i said lots of happy memories with the newspaper route not that many happy memories with the bed and breakfast not only because people are disgusting but because i also remember my stepmother telling my employer to pay me less. That's one of my first founding memories is that they were going to pay me a whopping $6 an hour because again, it was the early nineties and they could. And I remember my stepmother saying to them on my behalf, quote unquote, you need to pay her less because if you're paying her by the hour, she's so lazy. She will just take her time. I like, I'm still speechless about that to this day. There's nothing there's nothing, nor has there ever been anything in my personality that that denotes an air of laziness. Like, see above note, re having two jobs while babysitting my own sisters. Anyway, I remember her distinctly telling them to stop paying me six dollars an hour because it wouldn't be worth it, and to be, and be really really careful about how they track my hours. You know, because of this alleged laziness. And instead, dropped me down to five dollars an hour. Now these morons did. Like, who listens to that kind of advice for a sweet twelve-year-old kid? But nonetheless, that was one of the unhappy memories I had for my very first job. So that was kind of my own intro to work as well, right? Already being like advocated to be paid less, paid less than you're worth, but that just contributes to, despite the fact that we grew up in a wealthy family this was how we, I really felt like I was poor and undervalued all the time. Now, while I had those two jobs, I knew that I was required to pay for my own clothes, like all of my clothing. Again, I'm 12. So my clothes, my own haircuts, anything I wanted to do in my social life, as well as the lion's share of my university education. So my parents did have a very modest, I mean like very modest savings account for tuition, which is great. I am really grateful for that. I was able to graduate from university debt-free. And again, I wanna underscore, they contributed a small amount and I paid the rest of it. So I'm working my butt off, right? As a young tween and then eventually teenager, paying for everything including school trips. So I was somebody who, I wasn't really a sports kid, but I was definitely like a theater nerd and loved choir. So I was in a, <laughs> I don't think I've ever said this publicly before. I was in a competitive choir and we were really good. I even had a solo at a national competition. And I remember distinctly, we had a competition in Vancouver, which is literally across the country from where I lived and my parents wouldn't help me pay for it. They told me if I wanted to go, again, if I wanted to go and do my solo, I would have to find a way of paying for it. And so I fundraised the trip. And let me tell you, when you are fundraising a, a plane ticket and accommodation <laughs> to get across the country, you gotta sell a lot of chocolate bars. So I did. I sold a lot of chocolate bars and I was able to also finance my own school trips and choir trips. Now, my stepsisters, in stark contrast, were going to private schools. 
and I mean like from JK all the way up through high school. I didn't, I went to public school. Um, I'm not dissing public school. I'm just pointing out the contrasts here. I went to private school for a year and then I was like thriving, like so thriving. It was the best school. It was just a really tiny little alternative school and I had the best community. All my teachers knew me. The print, they'd let us call them by their first names. The principal like had his finger on the pulse of every kid. It was just like the best experience. And I remember, pardon me, wanting to go back, you know, for another year of high school. And my parents telling me they couldn't afford it. Now, even at the time, like it's a private school. And again, this was the 90s. So pricing was just different. But I think it was probably, I think the tuition back then was like 6,000 bucks, maybe. And we were a wealthy family. You know, my dad was a physician and uh, they were just like outright. They were like, yeah, no, we can't afford for you to go. Somehow they could still afford for my sisters or stepsisters to go. So uh, I never really understood that as a kid because I didn't really understand financial abuse as a kid. Anyway, so my sisters or stepsisters are there going to private schools. They rode horses competitively on the weekends. Awesome. Like the most expensive sport you can possibly pick. They did it, both of them, since they were like six years old all the way through. Also, they didn't work because they were too busy riding horses. They obviously couldn't have jobs and yet somehow managed to get cars and cell phones in their teens that my parents swore. They absolutely swore the girls were paying for on their own. I am here to tell you they did not have jobs. My parents were definitely footing the bill for that and just lying about it. And they also were treated to a full university education as well as a savings account. So again, I really believe that, and you know, you can only speak from your own personal perspective and you only really know what's true for you. From my observations, although the three of us grew up in the same household, I grew up poor, they grew up wealthy, even though we all had the same, you know, the same family income level. Now, that was just a part of why, <laughs> just a part of why I grew up feeling like I wasn't enough or that there wasn't enough for me. But I remember my dad reading the daily newspaper and no, it was not one that I had delivered. And he would share out loud the sunshine list. And that was an annual list published in Ontario with the names of every public servant who made hundred K or above. And I remember thinking like, what a big deal that would be to have my own name published on the sunshine list. Like how cool would it be to be one of those elites making a hundred K? And I also remember thinking how impossible, like absolutely impossible it would be for me to achieve that because there was no part of me that believed that I could be a person who could ever make that much money. The very clear and the very resounding messages I grew up with danced somewhere between you just aren't worth it and you're not good enough and you just don't matter. You know, and those were words that I heard regularly. Like you're just not good enough, Lise. You don't measure up. This isn't good enough. You, you have to be doing better. And I was doing like the best I could do with, with every possible layer of my life, right? The sad reality is that when someone tells you something enough times, you start to believe it. So amongst the decades of emotional, 
mental, and financial abuse I experienced in our perfect from the outside family life, I developed more than a few, shall we say, very toxically limiting beliefs about my own self-worth, my self-esteem, my core capabilities, and my potential. And this became a limiting belief structure and system that absolutely destroyed my sense of value and self-worth. And I'm not kidding. It was like decimated. I heard on a podcast the other day that when self-centeredness and trauma intersect, the seeds of self-loathing are planted. And what self-centeredness meant in this context is childhood, because as a, as a child, you are by design self-centered. Like you have to be centered about yourself. Babies don't even know that you exist if you leave the room, right? They don't have any object permanence yet. So as a kid who is a, a naturally self-centered being, when that phase of your psychological and emotional development intersects with some kind of trauma, that's the perfect breeding ground or the perfect garden soil for the seeds of self, self-loathing. And that was 100% my experience. It's not that you hate yourself. It's that you are just riddled with loathing yourself. So even when you can, you can like watch or observe your own patterns of behavior and you can say to yourself, okay, the thing I'm about to do is so bad for me. I shouldn't do it. Your unconscious pushes you forward to do that thing anyway to keep you trapped in that limiting belief structure right that's why behavior change is so damn hard as we've talked about on this show before that it requires rewiring your belief system it's not just about your mindset it's rewiring your entire belief system and re-establishing safety and security in your nervous system or in your unconscious so that you can actually feel safe enough to make the change you want to make So this limiting belief structure about my own self-loathing, my self-worth, my sense of worthiness, not only did that like decimate my sense of value, but it tremendously complicated my relationship with money and unconsciously guided my decision-making in the jobs, pay, and relationships I settled for going forward. So ultimately, It shaped the entire vision I had for my existence, which was to say quite small. Now that smallness left me in perpetual wanting of someone else to create a sense of safety and security for me. Does this sound familiar to you at all? I don't know about you, but that took me personally years to rewrite that narrative. Decades, really, if we're being honest decades to rewrite that narrative. Once it became clear to me, and as an adult, once it became clear that 99% of my personal motivation was just to create that sense of safety and security, the work, quote unquote, became so much easier. I had just never had that sense of safety and security growing up. And so naturally I was motivated to find that sense of safety and security or create it for myself eventually. And, and why I share that is because once you are aware of that activator or that trigger of like, Oh, I am doing this because 
it's so much easier to identify the patterns in your own life and actually what to do about them, right? So my motivation was just to create a sense of safety and security. All my motivation stemmed from needing to create a new sense of self-worth upon which I could then build out the rest of my life, my business, my relationships, and also my vision for a more fulfilling existence. Once I knew that all I was trying to do was act on behalf of this little girl to create safety and security, suddenly my desire to overspend (laughs) became, became abundantly clear. You know, anytime I overspent money, I was really just trying to create a sense of power, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of safety that I could give myself. So now when I'm into, and these patterns die hard, right? Now, when I'm inclined to overspend, I can actually consciously ask myself, hang on a second, like, do you really want to buy this thing? Or what are you trying to just buy yourself a sense of safety and security? Carl Jung has this incredible quote that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And that's what so many of us do until we decide to actually do the work. We allow ourselves to be guided by these unconscious principles and limiting belief structures. We allow that to shape our behavior and then we're like, yeah, it's just who I am. It just is what it is. Engaging in personal development work, you know, listening to this podcast, reading the book that will eventually come out after this, doing the course. All of this is designed to help you really understand who you are and how you think. That's it. Because once you understand both of those things, you can understand your motivations. You can have so much more compassion and so much more grace for yourself about how you interact with the world. And this is why I'm so obsessed with us understanding our relationship to money. You know, as I say, our money stuff is never about the money stuff. It's about our relationship to money. And if, for example, we look at at my own story, if money was a means of just creating safety and security, no kidding, I overspent my way into a lot of debt for a lot of years. All I was trying to do was feel safe. Doesn't make me a bad person. Doesn't make me bad at money. It doesn't make me an idiot. All those stories I told myself at the time. It made me somebody who was just trying to feel safe and didn't have the right skills yet to go ahead and do that. But now I do. And as I say, that took years for me to figure that out. And now it's like breathing. It's like it's as effortless as breathing. Yes, there are those moments where I have to just pause and be like, do you really need, like, I know you know, I know you like this t-shirt, but do you need four of the same black t-shirt? <laughs> or do you just like want the safety and security that feeling brings you, right? The reason that I'm sharing all of this is that each of us has this kind of core memory. We each have this background money story running our operation system in the background. And when you can get clear on what that is for you, everything else gets easier. So I would really encourage you as you're driving, washing the dishes, like just kind of walking the dog, listening to this podcast, think about what that is for you. Think about what those stories are that contribute to your own relationship with money. You know, mine 
knowing that I grew up in wealth, but always felt poor, I had so much work to do that was centered around my own sense of value, self-worth, etc. And when I was able to truly like, love, know, and accept myself, then my, like as my self-worth went up is what I'm saying, my net worth went up too. You have to do the inner work first and then you can do the outer work. And again, if we call this wealth EQ, like this understanding the emotional aspect of money, we can take a little step back and realize budgets don't work for 90% of people because you can't let, you, you don't feel safe enough using a budget or just saving more or just spending less if you have a tortured, frightening relationship with money. Like it doesn't work because your nervous system, your body won't let it work. You know, you can't create a healthy savings account if you're terrified of never having enough because you could have literal millions in the bank. And if you don't have an internal sense of safety and security, nothing will ever be enough for you. That's just like two ends of the spectrum. But each of us has a money story that dictates or informs, informs, I will say, not dictates. It informs our relationship to money and to borrow from young, you know, until you make the unconscious conscious that will continue to run the patterns in your life. And you'll just be like, yeah, this is the way that it is. So once again, I'm really proud of you for being here. And I feel really honored that you're taking your time to listen to this and, 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 you know, confront one of life's greatest taboo subjects, which is money and really start to dig in and understand who you are and what makes you tick. And then you can, again, have this increased awareness or this heightened sense of self-compassion and grace for the decisions you make now and the decisions you made in the past while also being able to inform or prepare yourself better to make more aligned decisions in the future with what you really want. That's how we change our relationship to money, right? That's the effect that it has. Once we change our relationship to money, we can change our relationship to life. And then we actually have more agency over how we interact with the world. Like what feels really good to spend money on? What feels really good to save for? What what does enough feel like for us? Not because somebody told us that these are the steps we should follow to get there or this is what we should call success. We just get a clear sense of what enough feels like for us specifically because we've done that inner work that tells us just how valuable and worthy we are. So to recap, our money stuff is never about money stuff. It's how we feel about money. It's our relationship to money. It's our wealth EQ. If we want to change our relationship to money, we have to get clear on what our relationship was and what it currently is by looking at some of those past stories that inform our experience so that we can move forward and do it in a different way. And if you want help with that, you are really in the right place because not only is this podcast going to be an excellent resource for you, but I've also designed a course specifically about how to make that foundational pivot to how you specifically relate to money. And if you head over to lisewilcox.com, we'll link this in the show notes, of course, but if you head over to my website, lisewilcox.com, you can grab that course using the code loving money, and we'll give you a little bit of a listener discount. So that's it. Please 
rate this show, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a comment. I'd love to share comments from the show with listeners just as a, a little thank you. It's also really nice for me to hear the feedback of what you love, what you want more of, and what you're like, girl, stop. <laughs> so your comments are really appreciated. Listen, this is the place to be if you want to change your relationship to money and you want to change your relationship to life. My name is Lisa Wilcox. I help women make more money as a strategic life and business coach. And I am so thankful for you being here today. Have a great day. Thank you.